Ezra chapter 4. This is the fourth message in the series called The Rebuilders. Looking at these guys and gals who came out of exile back to the land with a a stirring in their hearts from God to, to rebuild the temple and then to rebuild the walls and the city. And it's all been pretty positive so far. The first few chapters of Ezra, it's been, uh, they've started the work and they're encouraged and God stirred them up and there were singing songs in chapter three and they were starting to have their feasts again. And it's, it's all been pretty good. But now in chapter four, it all heads <coughs> south. Ezra chapter four, verse one, when the enemies... <laughs> When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. That sounds a bit harsh, a bit snappy. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We'll stop there. We're going to pick out bits and pieces from most of chapter 4 today. Our theme verse is Amos 9.14. Keep going back to it every week. I want you to get it into you. I will bring my people Israel back from exile and they will rebuild. And the timeline, I might as well show you it again because it took ages to do it, to be honest. So I want to get my value out of it. We are sitting there after Daniel. We are in about the mid-530s BC where Cyrus has conquered Babylon. So Cyrus is Persian. He's conquered Babylon And the Jewish exiles who were living in Babylon for 70 years have been told you can go home and you can rebuild your temple. That's where we're at there. And today, uh, things head south. We've learned over the past few weeks that rebuilders will allow God to be the architect of the project. We have learned that they have the capacity to be stirred We've learned that they will prioritize worship and they prioritize the word. They have a foundation. They work in community. It's all been good stuff. But today we're going to learn that rebuilders face opposition. This is not a cheerful chapter. <laughs> I, Whenever I'm tackling something like this, I always feel sorry for the worship team who have to come up afterwards and somehow, you know, bring you out of the doldrums of a chapter, a chapter of opposition and get you back up to the heights of worship. So, all the best. Uh, but this is where we're at in Ezra. It's not a cheerful chapter, but you know what? I think it's an eye-opener. I think you will learn a lot 
about the opposition that we face as individuals as we follow Jesus and the opposition that any church community or any group of people who are intent on rebuilding will face as they rebuild. So opposition is where we're at today. There's always great enthusiasm when something begins, when it's novel and it's new, and then there can be a rapid cooling off period when that initial excitement can wane and fade over time. And everything up to this point in Ezra has been pretty positive. There was a wee hint of fear back in chapter 3, and there was a wee hint of disappointment from the older exiles at the end of chapter 3, but up to now it was pretty positive. This is a really significant chapter, though, in terms of showing you how the enemy functions. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building. Now, if Samuel and I were going fishing and we needed worms, we would go to the compost heap. Because if you go to the compost heap, you'll find worms. And if any of you had a strange desire for slugs and snails and you wanted some slugs and snails, I would send you to the vegetable beds because they are alive with slugs and snails. And if for some reason you wanted a mouse, I would send you to the hen house because the hen house has got mice. And if you wanted an enemy, I'd send you to a building site because that's where you'll find enemies to the work of God. Wherever the rebuilders gather, after a while the enemy will start coming and sniffing around and seeing what's going on. So who are these enemies that are mentioned in chapter 4, verse 1? In 4.4, in a wee bit later on, we read that they are the peoples around them. So they go back to Jerusalem, and the land is not vacant of humanity. There are other people there. And what we need to do now is just have a quick look to see who these other people were. Because it's going to be important in showing us one of the first ways that the enemy works. So I'm going to have to go on a wee... And we run into 2 Kings 17. It's going to be on the screen, so you don't need to turn to it. Please don't ignore this, because this will let you see what's going on in the background in Ezra 4. 2 Kings 17, uh, what, what happens is the king of Assyria takes people away from the northern land of Israel, and he sends others back into it to re-inhabit it. Uh, at the end of verse 24, the, you know, the king has sent people into these towns. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. Now listen, when they first lived there, these are the people that the Assyrian king sent in to occupy the land of Israel. They're not God's people. They're people from other lands that he has sent in to populate the land. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. I don't know whether this is funny or not, but he sent lions among them and killed some of the people. Sounds a bit extreme. And it was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in Samaria don't know what the God of that country requires and he has sent lions among them which are killing them off because they don't know what he requires. So the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests that you took captive from Samaria go back and live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests does that. So in a, in a nutshell, king of Assyria has sent some people to live in Israel. Those people don't know how to worship God and things are all going pear-shaped because of these lions. And so the king sends a priest to teach them how to worship God so that they won't be killed by the lions. 
That's 2 Kings 17. All right. Now we're going to come back to it in a minute because it is important. Those are the people who are living in the land. Ezra 4 verse 2. The first tactic of the enemy is to bring in compromise disguised as cooperation. So it all starts off real subtle, real subtle, real friendly. Let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So those are the people that we've just read about in 2 Kings 17. And they're saying, we've been worshiping God for years and years and years, and therefore we can join you and help you in your rebuilding project. Seems friendly. The response from Zerubbabel, as I mentioned earlier, is a bit snappy. You have no part with us, okay? So these guys walk, rock up to the, the church plant or the new project or the new missional ad- adventure, whatever it is, and they say, we worship God as well. We want to help. And Zerubbabel says, no, <laughs> you're not. You're not having anything to do with us. And I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, oh, Zerubbabel, you've missed a trick there. You've missed an opportunity to get more bodies in the room and get a bit more help. But there's a reason why they have turned it down. It says, back to 2 Kings, I stopped at verse 28 of 2 Kings 17. Here's what verse 29 says. Each group, so we have this priest who's gone back to teach them how to worship God, but each group made its own gods in the towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines. And verse 33 says, they worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods. So the rebuilders have come back into a land where the people in the land do worship God to an extent, but they also worship lots of other gods. And that's where the problem is. And that's why Zerubbabel says, you're not working with us. We are devoted to God and God alone. And we cannot allow you to come in with your ideas about the other gods that you worship. Verse 34 of 2 Kings 17, they neither worship the Lord nor adhere to his decrees and regulations or the laws and commands that the Lord gave. They don't care for God's word, these people. They've come along to the building site. They've said, we want to help. And Zerubbabel says, no. You might remember from, from last week in Ezra 3, it was really high priority for the people to do everything in accordance with the word of God. Really important to them. They were desperate for the presence of God. They wanted to build the temple and do all the feasts and all the things in the way that it was written in the law of Moses. And they, were, they put that as absolute high priority. So they do not then want to bring in a group of people who do not care for the word of God even though those people are offering to help, even though they're, they're saying, we worship God and we'll join you and we'll help you build, he says, no, you won't. Because you'll bring in compromise. You'll bring in wrong ideas. This is not a minor difference of opinion about what type of song you sing or how you dress. This is bigger. This is about what esteem you place on the word of God. And Zerubbabel and Joshua say, you are not going to work with us. And I hear throughout this passage, and we'll sort of 
swing back to it at the end. Throughout this passage, I can hear a hissing in the background. Somebody is not mentioned, but there's a snake in the garden. There's a snake on the building site. There's a snake in my boot. (laughs) Some of you know what that means and some of you don't. But I can hear it in the background. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman in Genesis 3, 1, did God really say? Whenever there's compromise and twisting of the word of God, the alarm bells need to ring and they need to ring loudly. You cannot work with someone who twists and does acrobatics with the scriptures. I'm not saying that everyone who gets involved needs to be a theologian with a PhD in Hebrew or something. But if somebody twists and turns the word of God to suit themselves, then you can't work with them. There are certain things that whenever a project in the kingdom of God begins, a rebuilding project begins, there are certain key values that God will give to a group of people, key priorities that he he sets on them as he sends them into his work. And those things give them identity and give them purpose. And if someone comes in, those non-negotiable things suddenly get negotiated. And suddenly, instead of holding to the things that give you identity and the things that are distinct and important to you as a people on mission for God, those things get diluted down to a sort of a lowest common denominator with those who have come in with a different opinion on the Word of God. And you can guarantee as soon as the sound of toodles is heard on the building site, the snake will arrive and claim to share the vision and claim to be one and the same with you And you need to be very careful about how they handle the word of God, how it gets twisted and manipulated. Otherwise, you can compromise on your values and you can compromise on the mission that God has called you to. And you end up bending all different directions, trying to accommodate all different missions and ideas. So the first thing they do here is they come in with this compromise that is disguised as cooperation. We want to work with you, but really we want to change you to be like us. We want to bring in all our influences. The second thing is persistent discouragement. Now note that when you read Ezra 4, at the start, the enemies go to the leaders. That's always where they go first. Leaders, elders, worship leaders, people of of influence, they will go and they'll hit them first. When they don't get any traction by attacking the leaders, They go and attack all the people. And they attack them with discouragement. The peoples around them in Ezra 4.4 set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. And discouragement is something that is just massively destructive in any building project. What's the point of doing this? Why do you bother? You won't achieve anything. You're not getting anywhere. You're making no progress. Discouragement is a very subtle thing, but it is that drip, 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 drip over a long period of time, which eventually breaks you. For me, the the moments where the work of God is, is most in danger of coming to a standstill are not huge explosive incidents, massive, something's just exploded that has to be dealt with. It's not those incidents. It can be the constant drip, drip, drip of a comment, a 
a criticism, a text message, a look. It can be so many different little discouraging things that over time wear you down. And what these enemies, their tactic, once they have not been allowed to come in and work alongside the people, their tactic is to discourage them. Not, they're not coming in with arrows and spears. They're not trying to wreck the place. It's just feeding in this constant discouragement to wear them down. And the third thing in the same verse is fear. Discouragement can quickly turn into fear. What will people think of me? What will happen if the enemy or the opposition influences the views of those who are involved in the work and pulls them away? What if one of my key builders drinks the poison that the enemy is, is filtering in through this discouragement and leaves the building site? And you find yourself lying awake at night, turning these fears over in your mind. And like most fears, they will never come to pass, <laughs> but they will torment you and they will hold you back in your building project. So we have discouragement, we have fear. We then have professional opposition. They get the money out and they start to bribe officials to work against the people. Things are ratcheting up here. Money is used to influence and to get, not only to have you know, an attack on the leaders and then discouragement in the people, but we're now gonna actually get officials to go in among the people and cause frustration and hinder them and hold them back. And we're gonna pay for these people to do this. I don't know about you, but I can hear a hiss in the background. Because I know other times when people were paid to bring to go in and to bring lies among the people. In Acts 7, there's a guy called Stephen. I think it's actually at the end of Acts chapter 6, where before his long speech in Acts 7, it says they produced false witnesses who testified that this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. False witnesses are brought in to lie. And they're paid to do it. These are just guys on the street. And those who are in opposition would go and say, we'll give you a few shekels if you will show up at this court case. And if you will say this, this, and this about the people involved. And it also happened to Jesus. The chief priests and the Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Professional opposition to get right in there and to bring lies and discouragement into the hearts of the people. And I wonder how much of Zerubbabel's time was spent dealing with this. Whenever you are involved in a, in a missional project, in a rebuilding work, whenever you're spending time putting out fires, you are therefore not spending time about the work that God has actually called you to discouragement and distraction. The enemy does not turn up with a bow and arrow or a shotgun or whatever and try to just totally take you out. It's insidious, it's subtle, it's subversive. And Zerubbabel would have been spending time, I can imagine it's not recorded, but I can imagine him having to go to his people and say, what you were told isn't true. Or the way that that was relayed to you is not accurate. Because these counselors were coming in and spreading false information among the people and the leadership were then having to waste their time having these conversations to sort it all out. So professional opposition is another problem that they face. The next one that I see in this chapter is amplification. Now this is, 
If you're reading Ezra 4, the chronology of it is just all wonky, okay? The first five verses or so, they follow the sequence of the start of the book so far. What comes now in verses 6 to 23, and we're not going to go through every verse in detail, don't worry, but what comes now is a letter from possibly decades in the future. Because what Ezra wants to do here is show you the sort of antics that the opposition get up to. So he uses this letter, which is from the time of Nehemiah, and he pops it into chapter 4 to give his readers an indication of what the opposition is like. Three letters actually are mentioned in verses 6 and 7 and 8. One to Xerxes, one in verse 7 to Artaxerxes, and then there's another one that is sent from two guys called Rehum and Shimshai. And there's a whole amplification. Now, what I mean is, and and the point that I'm getting to here is, sometimes the opposition can shout really loud. And by shouting really loud, the opposition can give the impression that they have lots of influence and that they have lots of support and they have lots of backing, and they don't. So look at, the, look at the names that are mentioned here in verses 9 and 10. I'm not going to read, read this because it's a tongue twister if ever there was one. But we've got, all, you know, we've got these different guys who have written the letter and the rest of their associates. And a few names are mentioned and a few regions are mentioned. And it all sounds really, really important. But the point is, when you read these verses carefully, there's only five guys that write letters. Only five. And they link in a few associates and a few judges, but there's only five guys writing the letter. But when you read it, it sounds really intimidating. And it sounds as if there's a huge number of people who are opposed to the rebuilders, and there aren't. There's just a small number who shout really, really loudly. They write to influential people. In verse 6, they write to Xerxes, king of Persia. And in verse 7, they're writing to Artaxerxes, who's also the king of Persia, after Xerxes. And they write in a letter that will be widely understood. The whole point I'm trying to make here is that they are trying to get as much influence as possible. But there's only a small number of them. But they're using every tactic in the book to amplify their opposition, to be threatening, to try to get the people to stop. So they write it in a language that is not just limited to the people who live in Judah, but will be widely understood in all the regions round about. Do you hear a hiss in the background? Because I do. Because I know somebody else who had an accusation written in multiple languages so that it would be widely understood whenever Jesus was on the cross and the sign was placed above his head in John 19 where it says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was in Aramaic and it was in Latin and it was in Greek because the enemy wants to amplify his influence as far as he possibly can and affect as many people as he possibly can. In verse 11 of Ezra 4, again, it's subtle, but it gives the indication there where the letter is written to Artaxerxes and it says, from your servants in trans-Euphrates, which means on the other side of the river, it's written in a way that makes it sound that it's representing everybody. Do you ever get politicians... And you hear them say something or some representative and you're just like, you do not represent me. Or you see a sign on a lamppost in a town saying this town, you know, opposes this or opposes that. And you're like, you didn't ask me. (laughs) You're given the impression that you represent a huge number of people and you 
don't. You have snuck in at night when nobody's looking and put your sign up and you didn't ask anyone. And that's what these guys are like. They're given the impression that they represent a huge number of people when they actually don't. I love this saying, the empty can rattles the most. Okay, you can practice this later. Roll a Coke can around outside, Dad Coke, Coke Zero, outside and it'll not make much noise. Drink it and then kick it around outside, it'll make a lot more noise. The empty can rattles the most. The enemy who really has nothing to provide and nothing to give can make an awful racket. Second Peter talks about false teachers and says they are springs without water. They've got nothing in them. Mists, clouds driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them for they mouth empty boastful words. That's what the enemy does. Shows up on the building site, amplifies, makes a lot of noise to intimidate the people, but is not actually representing very many. I've been really frustrated lately with a certain um, large global company that produces entertainment that initially was particularly directed towards children and families. And I've got really frustrated to the point that I've ended my subscription at how they have started to continually push a sexually confusing agenda in programming that is aimed at young people and children. Now, I don't care if a streaming platform has got a section of material that is clearly, you know, for LGBT or whatever, and it's just very clear that that's, you know, that's what it is. But what has really bothered me lately is, is that it is creeping into kids, very subtly into kids' programming and into kids' films. And it's despicable, and I hate it. And the thing that I really hate about it is that this particular streaming platform has a very loud voice. And therefore, kids could watch this stuff and think, well, this is, I'm watching this on this particular streaming platform. I don't want to get sued. But I'm, I'm watching this on this particular platform. And it's massive and it's global. And therefore, it must be right. You see, they've got a voice. They've got a really loud voice. And you could fall under the influence of thinking that they represent a huge number of people. And they don't. I know so many Christians and I know so many non-Christians who are opposed to the content of, that, of those programs that are made for kids. A loud voice does not represent the majority opinion. When engaging in any rebuilding work, you will find that a small number of opponents can shout very loudly. And in your life, you could have 50 voices cheering you on, slapping your back, encouraging you, getting behind you, and you could have two voices that are cutting you down, and I guarantee those two voices will drown out the other 50. Is that not the truth? Those empty cans rattle the most, they amplify, they intimidate, and they drown out all the other encouraging voices, and that's all that you can hear because it's screaming so loud. You see, the enemy tends as well to exaggerate. Not only does, does the voice get amplified to drown out everything else, but there's also exaggeration. Look at the report that, that these enemies of God's people bring about them and about Jerusalem. They say it's a rebellious and wicked city. Jerusalem is not a rebellious and wicked city. They say that these people will never pay taxes or tribute or duty anymore into the king's coffers. That's a lie. God's people were always encouraged to, encouraged to pay their taxes. 
They say that the city is rebellious and troublesome to kings and has a long history of sedition. Nonsense. You see, the enemies, another tactic the enemy will have is to exaggerate, to blow things out of all proportion, to make the obstacles look huge, to, make, to take your failures. Do you know the way you pinch on your, on your touch screen and you sort of zoom in and zoom out? What the enemy does is puts his, puts his finger on, on a failure, a little tiny thing that you got wrong, that you messed up, and pinches out, makes it massive, exaggerates it. And something that's a victory, something that's to be celebrated, that's a good thing, puts a finger and thumb on, makes it tiny. Exaggeration in reverse. This is what they do. They completely over-exaggerate the, the facts and they misrepresent God's people. And they're determined they will leave no stone unturned. In Ezra 4, 14 and 15, they tell the king to go back into the records and find something that he can pin against the rebuilders. And if you go back far enough, you can find Hezekiah who defied Assyria. And you can find Zedekiah who defied Babylon. And they will, they will, they will be determined, even if they have to go back 70 or 100 or 150 years, they will find something <clears throat> that they can pin on people to discourage them and stop the work. They're determined. And none of this has changed. And Jesus said to his people in John 15, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. Expect opposition. You go to the building site, you will find soon enough, once the sound of machinery is heard, the enemy will rock up and start to use these subtle ways to try to bring an end to it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, a great door for effective work has been opened to me. Massive opportunity, a building site, a great big area of land that is just prime real estate to build on. He says, a great door has opened and there are many who oppose me. He's not naive about it. He knows work, opportunity will also bring opposition. Now, sometimes we can get into opposition because we're stupid, we're stubborn, and we maybe say something that's a bit ignorant or we maybe behave in a way that's a bit awkward, but that's not what we're talking about here. Those things can be resolved in normal, healthy relationships. We're talking here about satanic opposition to the work of God. And that opposition can take many, many forms. We've seen in this passage in Ezra 4, 4, we have seen invitation to compromise, bribery, discouragement, fear, lies, appeal to the law, and at the end of the chapter, even the use of force. And the effect of all of that is that it just wears people down to the point that they just say, what's the point? I'm so tired. I'm so sick of one more negative thing, one more comment, one more text message, whatever, just one more wee thing that has worn me down. You ever heard about the straw that broke the camel's back? <laughs> and you get apathetic and your nerve has gone. You've, you've had a failure of nerve to, to keep standing against the opposition. A commentary writer called George Adam Smith said, the great causes of God and humanity are not defeated by the hot assaults of the devil, but by the slow, crushing, glacier-like mass of thousands and thousands of indifferent nobodies. <laughs> that slow, massive movement of discouragement, that's how the work of God is brought to a halt.
However, all of these forms of opposition actually only have one source. And here we're drawn to a close. I've said throughout this passage, chapter 4, over and over again, I've heard a hiss in the background. Yeah? Old Snake Features has raised his ugly head a few times. And it's clearest in Ezra 4, verse 6. There's a word in there that sort of gives the game away as to who's behind all this. Accusation. In Hebrew, the word for accusation is sitna. Say sitna. Sitna. Very close in Hebrew is the word for accuser, which is satan. Satan. And even though he's not mentioned in the passage, if you're listening, you can hear the hiss in the background. Accusation. There is a serpent who has an unrelenting hostility against God and God's people. He's been at it ever since Genesis 3, where God said, I'll put enmity between you, speaking to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will only be able to strike his heel. There is a serpent, there is a snake, there is an accuser. And our opposition is not flesh and blood, Paul says. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand, not against the fella in the other church, not against the people down the road, not against somebody in a, in a pub or in a local business who doesn't like Christians or something like that. He says, no, no, no. You need to take your stand against the devil's schemes, against the accuser, against the Satan. His schemes are designed to discourage and to accuse. And there are times in any healthy human relationship where things need talked about. There are times in a church family where things need talked about, where something maybe is misunderstood or something is said out, out of place. And, and, and what you need to have is person A and person B sitting down and, and aiming for reconciliation. But what Satan does is instead of person A sitting with person B and aiming for reconciliation, person A goes and talks to person C about person B and reconciliation becomes accusation. And once you've got accusation, you've got a snake in the garden because that's what he does. And I've seen it. He did this. She did that. And the tone is not of one that is seeking reconciliation. The tone is accusation. Sitna from the Satan. And if discouragement is a tactic of Satan to stop the rebuilding, then God's people need to get good at encouragement to counteract that. Hebrews 10 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on. Do you like getting spurred on? Spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. You should see it as part of your role as a Christian and as a brother and sister in Christ. Give people some training advance of them, in advance of them meeting Jesus because we know what Jesus will say to them when they meet him and you should practice give their ears some practice in hearing that between now and then and what will jesus say to them whenever he meets them he'll say well done 
So we should maybe practice in the church saying to one another, well done. Not just rubbing of the ego to sort of make people feel good, but learn to encourage one another. You never lose the, the, the benefit of that. It's not about your ego. It's not about feeling good. But even as you, you know, we, we're good sometimes at encouraging young people or encouraging children. But you know what? On Friday night, I was in a conversation. And part of that conversation, a person who I love and respect dearly said, you handled that well. And you know what? It was gold. <laughs> it was just gold to be encouraged. To be encouraged. So we need to, if, if the enemy's going to come onto the building site and discourage, we need to be good at saying, well done. You laid those bricks well. You did that pipework well. That's a lovely bit of joinery. That roof will never leak. Well done. We need to be good at encouraging and building each other up because we know there is someone who sniffs around the building site and wants to tear people down. The outcome of opposition at the end of Ezra 4, and this is where I hate leaving you, <laughs> is that the work on the house of God came to a standstill. That's a bleak verse. That's what the devil wants. That's the end result of years of the drip, 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 drip of discouragement and accusation. But Jesus doesn't leave us there, and I can't leave you there, so I only showed you the first half of 424. There's another bit. Thus the work of the, on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So let me give you a wee sneaky preview of what will come up on the rebuilders. In chapter 5 and verse 2, the work starts again. And you need to take encouragement from the fact that even though you may have been discouraged and you may have quit the building project that you're part of, you may have lost heart in it and you may have let it come to a standstill. It can restart. We'll find out next time how it restarts, but you need to know that whenever your hopes and dreams and plans and building projects appear to have been buried in the graveyard, according to Robert Fell, he says, when we come to an apparent graveyard of our hopes, we need to renew our trust in a God who knows his way out of the grave and not only resurrected King Jesus and not only resurrects us, but can also resurrect our hopes and dreams and building projects and personal ambitions that are rooted in God. He can resurrect those as well. Let's pray and then we'll sing.